Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Nick and Sheila Nicholas. Uh, it's Thursday, March 9th, 2022. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Uh, the first question to get us started is why wine? Uh, why wine? I guess it, <laughs> it started when I was a youngster and my dad, who was a Texan, decided to come west because of the Depression. And the first property he brought had grapes on it. And he said, son, we're going to take these out. I said, why, Dad? He said, these are table grapes. Where was this? And they have seeds. Where were they? Where was this? This was in Lodi, in the Central Valley. Right, i got to prompt him here. <laughs> <laughs> so he tore them all out. And basically put some field crops and stuff like that. That's how I got introduced to, to grapes, basically, because I was a... 12-year-old, and I was hired to thin for a nickel, for a nickel an hour. Mm-hmm. But I got involved in this actual thinning, seeing grape vines, what you're trying to do, and just learning over time. Um, but I think about 100 years ago, we met in London, and I was doing uh, PR at the time, and one of my clients was food and wine from France. Mm-hmm. And we came, we got married in 81 in Boston. And then um, through a series of events, well, we had, we ended up in Benicia and then had the opportunity to start a pizza parlor in St. Helena in the Napa Valley. So I thought, well, I'll get back into PR because I enjoyed it. And eventually ended up with a marketing company that, with a PR agency that did a lot of wine PR. Mm-hmm. So from then, that was it. We sort of, we just, we got to know everybody. Our kids played with their kids. Um, we traded wine for pizza. It was good. This cellar here is full of cult cabernets that cost us a large pepperoni. <laughs> so, um, so we ended up just, just really loving it and meeting rock stars in the Napa Valley. And then through my work beyond that in France and Italy and so on. And uh, one day we thought, well, we could do this. How hard could it be? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we looked around the Napa Valley and and, uh, we couldn't afford whatever it was, six figures for an acre um, to buy Cabernet. And the pizzas weren't that good. But we would... um, uh, one of my clients at the time was up here in Oregon. I knew, I knew a couple of people up here, Susan Sokoblosser and Roland Souls. Mm-hmm. And um, I came up and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the weather was gorgeous. We love the seasons. We love the, the colors, the rain. It's so green here. And the people were amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we, we thought, well, let's do it. And we took the plunge, 2000, right? Yeah, right on. 9-11, we were in that little house. And we lived in a little house on the property for a year while we built this. And we found this property, which was uh, an overgrown walnut and plum orchard. Um, It was about 70 acres. And uh, we could afford it. So that pizzas didn't fit that bill. Anyway, so we um, we did it the hard way. We never bought any fruit from anybody. We pulled out a lot of the orchard and um, planted a vineyard. So we put in like thirty five acres the first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was well, you know, it wasn't quite the smartest thing to do, really, because <laughs> we just did it because we wanted to and. Um, when we put in, it's easy to put it in, and then, and then if you're not going to buy grapes from anybody, it's a long, slow burn until you, until you uh, get any return on those grapes. And do you remember the first? It was two thousand three was our first vintage, and we sat out there on the deck. We had our first bottle of wine, uh, from our vineyard, 
and we, we got a piece of paper out and we calculated how much that bottle cost. <laughs> What was it, $537.12 no, or something for one bottle? <laughs> so it was the most expensive bottle of wine we ever drank. But it was lovely. And um, so that's, that's kind of how we ended up doing it. Um, really just because we love the fresh air, we love seeing things grow. Um, of course we love wine, you know, that's, that's, um, that's obviously the case. Um, and... Uh, so the rest, as they say, is history. Mm-hmm. And then we had somebody t- analyze the grounds, and, and yeah. he said, you got a gold mine. Mm-hmm. So we were really fortunate there. Um, but Sheila knew it because we were in the wine business, so, you know, the elevations and, and mm-hmm. a little bit bigger up here because the air and heat worked a little different than Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're going to buy, you're going to buy pinots rather than calves. But we planted uh, three varietals the first time around. Pinot, yeah. And then added some more and some more clones on the on the Pinots. We had five clones in Pinot. And so we said, I, I think that's enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we started the changes recently. We said, well, we don't have, we have more Vadensville than we really need. Let's, let's put some Pomard in there. So we grabbed it over. And, I'm glad we did. It turned out beautifully. But we we planned that because we found grapes from other people that we knew and said we experimented. So we put it together and see what we got. And so what clones went with what clones. And so we get a really, really terrific blending wine. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. It's just uh, experimenting with, but like I say, Sheila knew people here that we pioneers as well, mm-hmm. very well. Mm-hmm. And doing PR for him, so so she got a lot of free advice. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of free advice. <laughs> Too much, but no, I think that that sort of talks to the industry, especially in those days. I remember, I remember call, it was raining at harvest, and I was like, oh my god! In Napa, they bring out the helicopters, you know. And I called up Roland Souls, and he goes, "Girl, don't be a wussy. <laughs> Just go and rain." <laughs> And it rained, and it was fine. Yeah, it we survived, <laughs> and uh, you know that's kind of the way it was. So we we learned. I think um, someone gave us the best advice, which is learn the rhythm of the vineyard, mm-hmm. and that's something that we've been able to do because we're in it every day, um, doing something, and so you just you observe it, and it becomes very much part of you. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bizarre feeling, but it's. Uh, um, something I wasn't expecting, really. Mm. I mean, you weren't expecting that connection. Yeah. Um, so it's very powerful. So we're still here. <laughs> yeah. 20 yeah. something years later. Um, so we, uh, yeah, so learning the rhythm of the vineyard, you can also see what the vineyard needs, when it needs it. Oh, you know, when the gophers are out, <laughs> you know. When the birds are coming, mm-hmm. you know, when the frost is coming. and when it has degrees. But it's too hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember when we, when, the, when we planted the young vines, we were dry farming. Up, you can't see we're here. Um, and it was baking hot three years ago. And they were like brand new babies. And I stretched every single hose I had from the, from the faucet here <laughs> and ran it. Oh, as far as I could, and then turn it on, blast it as far out as I could. That's our irrigation. Then I had my little scooter. I had a 15 gallon tank on the back <laughs> with a one, and I said, 1,001, 1,002. <laughs> so I got to 1,010, I gave him a gallon of water. Move on to the next one. I did that three times that year to save him. And uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't let him die. <laughs> Too much hard work. We're not going to let you die. So uh, that was an experience that we didn't expect, but uh, we had one last year too, and it took 116 degrees. We knew we saw it coming, like she says, you know the property, you know what's there. So we saw it coming. We left more leaves on so they wouldn't get burned, and so it turned out tremendous because the crop was fantastic. So we were very, very pleased. We made the right call, but that said, you have to, you have to feel the pulse. Mm-hmm. 
So I have many questions about all of that, but I'm going to come back to it because <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about before wine because you, you mentioned oh. mentioned meeting and marrying and all of that. So um, Sheila, we'll start with you. Talk a little bit about your kind of your early life and and, and early work uh, and how you two met. <laughs> Sorry, we have different stories <laughs> on how we met. That's why I'm just like laughing. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. but <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, oh my, okay. Uh, my bullet proof, my, my bulleted list is I was born in Iran. Mm-hmm. My father was in the foreign office. Um, he was a diplomat and we moved around the world. So Iran, North Africa, West Africa, Seattle ended up uh, in Scotland, where he was from Scotland, so we lived in Scotland, um, and, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten all this, <laughs> when, uh, when I was very 22 or something, I wrote a book, it was a cookbook on Scottish cooking, but um, it was against the contract I had with the uh, company I was working with as a journalist, <laughs> so I took the money, went to Greece, for a couple of weeks, and that was about all I had, and then came back and then had to find another job. Where am I going with this? Um, oh, and there were no jobs basically in Scotland, but but I realised there were much more. There was much more action in London than there was in Scotland at the time. I'm talking 50 years ago, and um, uh, so got the overnight bus down to London, found a job in PR, uh, lucked out there, and. Um, Met Nick. I thought he was a dashing rich American. <laughs> uh, it was in the days when Dallas was on. You probably don't remember that. J.R. Ewing and all that stuff. And he said, I live in the Central Valley. I'm like, mm, I live in a ranch style home. It's like, whoa. My parents drive a Cadillac. I'm like, that's it. That's it. That's it. He was a good salesman. It turned out to be the duplex in Lodi and the Cadillac was rented. <laughs> but anyway, damage was done and we got married in Massachusetts, halfway between his family in California and mine in Scotland. And uh, that's it. <laughs> and what's your version of that, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, firstly, I, was, I came into to London. I was working for Colgate in their medical division, so uh, they uh, promoted me up here, or up to London, and I covered basically Europe before, but I covered the whole world with another company that they bought, so it was sort of a relief that I didn't have to fly for three weeks in 14 different cities, and mm-hmm. you know, it was tough, but it's uh, it was a start, and uh, I just got involved, and then they said, well, we need you back home. So they took me back home. But before that happened, uh, uh, I, a friend of ours decided to make have a to-do, a party. So we had put together a lamb type of dish I made for like 10 people. And uh, I was doing a flat bathroom. bathroom uh, basement. Bacon, basement and flat. And then I could see she had a girlfriend coming down the stairs. I just said, Holy moly. But then, after, after dinner was done and I was cleaning the dishes, these guys just <laughs> collapsed around these two girls. I said, wait a minute, guys. Well, you should back up and say, this was a, we weren't invited because his friend's fiancé knew us, myself and Josephine, and said, guy I know is having a party, doesn't know any girls. And we're like, Done. <laughs> See, that's her ambulance. You know, and we didn't have to bring our own bottle either. It was amazing. It, was like, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen to us anyway. So, um, and it was Nick's party. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that flat was something else. Well, the one I finally, I moved out and she had to try to sell it in like two months. She was had a tough time, but I understand, because we had like 16 offers on it, you know, it's just like every time, well, no, no. So it was, it was interesting. It was fun. Yeah, it was, it was fun. And then I could say we got uh, engaged over there, and uh, they moved me back to Boston headquarters and uh, got married, and, and the church that had a, a soldier from the Civil War 
uh, from you know, Civil War buried underneath the altar that he was in a, on a tra- horse and they would try to get away and they shot him and uh, they didn't realize that he bucked but uh, he was buried under that, that church and there was <laughs> George and Martha had plaques on the seats and there the Grace Church is just a, amazing a couple hundred years old at least more sure. than that so it was interesting the vicar came out with his white tennis shoes and it was cool <laughs> <laughs> So how did you, how did you get from there to owning a pizza parlor in California? Oh. <laughs> I had a couple of buddies who were schoolmates, were fraternity brothers, and uh, one of them got into uh, well, his father was owned a pizza parlor, and, and and he found out this guy that's going bankrupt, and so he got into a pizza parlor, got two for next to nothing, and then uh, I was getting. Little antsy of getting too, giving too much and getting too little, mm-hmm. and the corporate end of it, the care, you know, it just gets to be very political. So it's, it was time to go elsewhere. I looked at financials. I said, "Hmm, might work." So by the time we finally sold the last one, we had seven different ones, and we had a total eight hundred employees in twenty years. It's amazing. Ninety nine W two one year. <laughs> so. And, <laughs> Like she said, pizzas, we'd have, uh, you know, why don't we say, I need, I need 40 today. Okay, I need 20 at this shift, I need 20 at this shift, I need 20 at this shift. I said, well, okay, oh, that, that uh, Chardonnay is really nice. Give me a case, give me a couple cases of that Chardonnay. And give, me, <laughs> give your reserved peanuts, uh, peanuts but uh, calves and stuff, and so I just swap. And I learned a lot from that, too, as well. So I got to try ones that I probably wouldn't try. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was quite interesting. But, uh, and it got, we went through Desert Storm. We had a, I had a couple of places where we were building their houses and we had a pizza parlor there. That one hit us between the eyes. And, and so we had a couple of misses, but we had two of them that basically grossed as much as a McDonald's. So they were, they were big grossing pizza parlors. That's amazing. She she was a trooper. She came to pick me up. We changed cars. We only had one car. And uh, she she was working the shift. I said, she said, well, honey, I, I can't work the shift now. I said, why is that? Is that my water just busted? <laughs> so she was due to work the shift that night as well. So it was tough. Kids kids laying on the counter changing diapers. Oh, I don't man. say that to her. No, we, <laughs> so we would come in for lunch, and the ladies from the city would come in like, here, babysit my infant. <laughs> oh, lovely, thank you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I used to deliver pizzas with the kids in the back seat. Because, mm-hmm. you know, and it got to be old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway. But self-employed is what you do. Mm-hmm. And I think we've always been tough and resilient. We've, you know, no matter what, we've always... We've figured it out, haven't we? Yeah, well, when we finally sold the last one, we had three employees that had been with us an average of 16 years. It's amazing. And we treated them well. They treated us well. That was, that was it. That, that was a big key. And mm-hmm. we liked each other, too. Well, exactly. <laughs> and actually, here at our tasting room, we have... We have... Uh, our staff has been with us. The, the most recent one is four years ago. Mm-hmm. So most of our staff's been there for... 12, 15 years, and that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, we love them all, and they've all been out here. They've all, um, they all know the vineyard, and they've done stuff in the vineyard, and they know exactly what it's all about. So it's really, it's very powerful, and they're, they're nice, nice people. We really enjoy them. They're family, really. Yeah, there they are. Yeah. So it's good. So you mentioned that your your kind of love for wine sort of blossomed once you got to St. Helena and, and kind of were in, all of a sudden in Napa and, and around all these wines. So I'm curious about, as you got there, kind of your initial impressions of the wine industry in, in, in Napa at that point and of the wines themselves. What was exciting to you about the, about the wines and about the people involved in the industry? In the Napa Valley? In the Napa Valley. Ooh, well... I think it was really nice to see, well, because of who we were, what we were able to do, and how we were, it was a community. Mm-hmm. So we would, um, 
you know, our son's soccer coach was Bill Harlan, you know, I mean, stuff like that. And it was not a big deal. And, um, you know, we would, we would trade pizza, <laughs> a lot of trading, trading wine as well. So, uh, you know, if, if so-and-so would come spend the night, the, they get a bottle of my wine you know, for babysitting or whatever. <laughs> so it was just, just relaxed. Um, and that, you know, in those days it was, it was like the Falcon Crest was just starting and that was kind of around the corner from us. So it's really the first time I really realized that it was that important to growing region because mm -hmm. of the buses that would start coming and the tourists, which we never really, before the wine train even that we were there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking 40, 40 something years ago. Mm -hmm. And the kids came to high school in their BMWs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that had to. Uh, that's one reason we came up here, actually, because it it got to that stage yeah. where when when uh, Mark and Heather started getting into high school, uh, basically the it seemed to us that you either walked to school or you drove a BMW, mm. uh, and it was just like, and they all went to the A and W for lunch which cost me like 12 bucks a day or something. <laughs> and um, it just wasn't, wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it wasn't healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, when we came up here, Mark got his first job at his favorite restaurant, which was Taco Bell. Because <laughs> there's no Taco Bells in San Lina. Um, yes, there weren't. And it just got bigger. It got bigger and they got more and more money being, being dropped into it. Mm -hmm. uh, more foreign investment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, I assume the wine quality went up. We weren't that knowledgeable about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what they're getting now. It's silly money. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say that, but um, it's it's very different ball game mm -hmm. than we have up here. Yeah, because a lot of foreigners came in and bought big properties and uh, mm -hmm. lost their buns, turned around and sell them for 50% less. So that... That has hit its cycle, and all the people said, whoa, I better stay out of that right now. But I think it's just, it has changed back to that over time. Uh, but it's also the fact that those people that are moving up here, that half the people are moving up here. And we've known a number of those people very well. So uh, it's interesting how that transitions now from 20 years ago to now, because it's a lot. It's a lot more cutthroat than mm -hmm. than people imagine. Mm -hmm. That's you know, and unfortunately, that's coming a bit up to here as well. But because we're we're bringing the influx of those people here, and they're all trying to say, stay away. You know, this is a different country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think people come to Oregon for the the love of making wine. Uh, it's not easy if you're if you're into it. Um, I see a lot of winemakers coming from California up here and none going from here to California. I don't know what that means other than I would assume that it's much more unpredictable up here. It's much more exciting. So we never know what the harvest is going to be. We never know what the vintage is going to be. We never know what's going to happen. Whereas in other parts of the world, it's much more predictable. You can plan your vacations around harvest. You can't do that here. Um, so, and I think the camaraderie and the, the networking and the sharing of knowledge and equipment and staff and crews and all that mm -hmm. stuff um, is, is much more up here than it is, I'm assuming. It's been a long time since mm -hmm. I've been there and mm -hmm. it's never on that end of things, but it seems to be very different down there now. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep that, uh, that passion which we, you know, it's the thrill, really, of making wine mm -hmm. that we have up here, as opposed to doing it as a business. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know. Like Sheila said, people are coming here for our, our consultant winemaker, been here about 15 years. He came from uh, Michael Brown. Costa Brown. Costa Brown, from mm -hmm. Costa Brown. Mm -hmm. He was the assistant when he won Wine of the Year. He's been with us for 15 years. He's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, he does miracles. Well, not really. We got some great grapes, but he, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows what we want, you know. But he also puts his own opinion into it as well. So he's very. He's a good friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can't ask for more, really, when it comes to the consultant, because we basically do the tasting. There's a 
Pamela three. And it's going to be three to zero, or else guess what? It goes in a pot. We'll see you in two weeks, okay? Come back again. We'll try it again, all right? So we're very, very, very concerned about that because uh, we get a lot of 90 ratings. And, uh, you know, what do people say about 90 ratings? There's anything uh, too well. The same guy gives the same rating all the time, and he looks at the other guy, oh, you got a 92? Well, give him a 93. Anyway, you probably heard that as well. <laughs> So when you came up here, you had a you had a bit of an idea. You you, you mentioned you used to and you knew Raw and you knew a few people up here. Uh, what was your kind of initial impression of Oregon at that time? Both at both Oregon the place, but also Oregon's industry at that point and the people in it. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. I mean, nobody used their car horns. <laughs> I remember um, going to Fred Meyer and the the gal at the checkout line in front of me was talking to the cashier and they like. You know, time, you know, just go. And suddenly I realized I had nowhere to go. You know, <laughs> of course the cashiers asked me if I had a good day. Yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And so relaxing that way was was um, very different from the pace or the stress, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the industry was so helpful. Uh, you know, we would network, we would meet, we would talk about each other's wines, we'd call each other up and say, what are you doing about blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Oh, have you tried this, you know, etc. So that was, it was terrific to be able to do that. Um, or you'd say, hey, I, I remember you had this such and such piece of equipment. How does it work for you? And they go, eh. <laughs> you go, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, save me some money there. Um, or, you know, if you want to borrow mine, do it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it was it was good, and the, and there was no them and us. We were made mm. very welcome by everybody, really. Because mm. um, a lot of them came here about maybe five to ten years before us. Because we we're, I wouldn't say pioneers. We weren't there fifty years. At about five of those, basically. Mm. Yeah. Two of them were gone, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, we we're sort of that phase mm-hmm. of coming in from other other places and uh, just like those guys did too yeah. I mean, they came out from California mm-hmm. and uh, I'm glad they did because they, they helped establish a footprint here and uh, they were reliable they were willing to share you know they were willing to help you out if you came to a big problem you know they'd be there the first one to help you mm-hmm. so it's a family it was it still is but it's it's Diluted a bit. Mm-hmm. So, what about Pinot Noir then? Obviously, you'd come from cab country, and, and you were used to you used to big cabs. So, tell me about about discovering Pinot Noir, and what what, what excited you about the uh, the prospect of growing it? Well, I think uh, we started off. With, I started off with White Zinfandel, <laughs> my gateway drug, my great wine, gateway wine. You know, you and everybody else. Yeah, there you go. So White Zinfandel to cab, you know, to go straight to the big stuff. And then, you know, we just don't eat steaks every night anymore, do we? I mean, Zinfandel, every so often is fine. But I think as your your palate changes, as as you grow older, (laughs) you... You you get you want more of the finesse. You want something more interesting. You want something that's not gonna just give you a headache, um, but something that really enhances the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of truth that we believe in the saying of what grows together goes together. So up here we have salmon, we have mushrooms, we have uh, all kinds of beautiful you know beautiful produce and mm-hmm. wild things and and fish and so on so and that's what pinot is all about mm-hmm. and you can you can get a pinot to match with anything mm-hmm. anything um you can't get a cabernet that matches with anything um so yeah that's that was kind of it i think you know you just you, you grow into it i think mm-hmm. it's you know you kind of go go from the whites into the big stuff and then you settle on oh, it doesn't make any sense. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and no vintage is the same, and that's exciting for us. So, uh, we learned how to speak like farmers. Oh, 11, that was the year without summer. Oh, 10, that was the year of the birds. Oh, you know, nine, that was da 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 da. 
So um, that's how it's pegged in our minds. Mm-hmm. Is, so this is the 12, this is perfect. You know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of how we, uh, every vintage is different. It is for us, we're not making cookie cutter wines. So, you know, we let the, vintage, the vineyard lead the way, and that sounds very corny, but um, so I tell the story about how we met Aaron. We used to... Met who? Aaron. When we, when Aaron we first, yeah, when we first started here, we, we put in our 30 acres or something, and we went, oh, now what do we do? <laughs> so we need someone who can help us. <laughs> Um, and we interviewed quite a few winemakers, and, and I'm sure you've interviewed them too, but, um, uh, you know, they would, several of them would say, so what kind of wine do you like? I'll make it just like that. And we went, well, first of all, we want to see what this vineyard does before we start pigeonholing it, or, or if we're going to. So we met Aaron Hess, who at the time was, I think it was still at Rex Hill. Mm-hmm. He was starting his own brand. Um, and he said, good grief, what a beautiful property. I'd love to see what kind of wine it makes. Mm-hmm. And we went, done. <laughs> so he was our winemaker for the first three two years. Two or three years, then he passed. Mm-hmm. That's which was terribly sad. But, mm-hmm. yeah. but he taught us a lot. Um, and so that's kind of how we, we went from there. We've always, whatever the vineyard wants us to do, we do it. Mm-hmm. So if it's a big year, we have fifteen percent alcohols, and that's the way it is. So be it. Pay the taxes. Uh, we don't. We don't capitalize. We don't spin it. We don't dilute it. That's the way it is. Yeah. So I think he knows that. Yeah. But he's on our side anyway, so it makes it easy. Mm-hmm. Who, Michael? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So you mentioned before we started the interview, you talked a little bit about the kind of the development of the, of the property and of the vineyard. I'm curious. Uh, as you were taking over something that was overgrown and kind of uh, unruly and turning it into this, what were the kind of unexpected challenges along the way? What, what, what happened? What did you have to do or have to learn that you weren't necessarily expecting as you set out to grow, to plant a vineyard here? We, we learned, we, we didn't just kind of do it. We did actually get due diligence with <laughs> soil tests and that kind of thing. And we did get a vineyard manager who who helped us lay it out and suggested a lot of stuff. That was Buddy Beck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fantastic. But I think in terms of what what did we do, we had no idea how physical it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not easy to prune. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's like exhausting. And raising, even raising the wires is exhausting. Um, and there's only so much you can ask your children to help you do. <laughs> um, so that was that was to me the most surprising thing. We both lost a lot of weight, <laughs> buffed up, <laughs> and uh, we learned a lot because yeah. the tractor it was it had to be our friend because you can only do so much and be effective. So uh, we had to learn to take care of that, you know. And uh, but again, we had uh, we had great uh, help from Buddy, mm-hmm. and now we have uh, Chad Vargas. <laughs> Adelsheim, because we sold a lot to Adelsheim. Each chance great too, so we're, we're we're pleased. But we choose people that are on the same level that we are, thinking mm-hmm. what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to go up in that tangent or that tangent, or I'm going to go down the middle of the road. I'm going to venture little ways mm-hmm. each way, and as time goes and as the crop comes in, because mm-hmm. we follow the crop quite quite vividly. Vividly to find out what's going to come from that sun, what's going to come from that heat. Mm-hmm. Do we need to pull leaves? Do we need to expose? We're going to get any any bites from from the birds. Mm-hmm. Don't know. It's, it's, there's something there. Mm-hmm. The birds can really wipe you out. Really mm-hmm. Last few years, really well. They've done extremely well. Mm-hmm. But we've had some guy like Stoller's lost a big part of their vineyard years ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway. To, <laughs> there are so, neighbors now too. Yeah, so. are, yeah. <laughs> um, we uh, actually one thing that this is probably completely not really relevant, but one thing that surprised both of us is the amount of paperwork and taxes mm-hmm. we have to pay, and nothing's not on a handshake anymore. It's brutal. 
mm. brutal out there. Mm -hmm. The paperwork is just, you can bury your life. Mm. And um, there's so many organizations and they call it a luxury tax. It's like, what? <laughs> uh, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, how, how is this a luxury? Look, do I look like I'm in luxury? Uh, so anyway, so that's, that's pretty, pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. And then travel and selling as well, it is, Actually, that's got easier, really, I think. Distributors uh, are difficult, though. You, distributors you, are, tough, are tough when you're small. Mm -hmm. they, and they want everything, and, and they, you know, they want you to sell it and everything, and then they take the profit. Say, Wait, something wrong with this, this theory here. And then they don't pay you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or well, your wine's in New York, and there's no money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, you know, there's stuff like that. That's just the headaches of being self-employed anyway, really, mm -hmm. I suppose. But uh, but I think it's the taxes and all of the agencies. It's like there's one every day that crops up. There's another one that just came up in Oregon. I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, so yeah. So when it came time and you and you finally had, you mentioned the, the most expensive bottle of wine you ever had, the, the, first, the first bottle. When you, when you finally had wine in the bottle, Tell me about creating, what, what point did you create the name? Did you create kind of how, how what, what you wanted the brand to be and what you wanted the brand to kind of stand for? Well, we, it's just sort of evolved really. So, you know, we, we're the marketing committee. <laughs> so we breakfast, you know. Um, so we, we had the concept, we basically called the wine Anamkara, and in Celtic, it means friend of my soul or soulmate. Um, and the way we came up with that name, we had some friends over, we had a dinner party right here, and everybody had to bring, it was a, a, to name the wine, basically. Everyone had to bring a bottle that they liked the label, uh, so we could do our label research that way. Well, eight of us, so we thought four couples, you know, with eight bottles of wine because no one could agree on anything. <laughs> and um, one of our friends was reading this book called Anamkara, the Book of Celtic Wisdom. Mm -hmm. So we got a hold of the book, and, and she was saying, you know, it's all about friendship and connections, and it really made a lot of sense to all of us at the dinner, frankly. And the fact that people have been making wine for thousands of years and God willing, they still will be when we're done. And um, so there's that connection. There's a connection with the land, the connection with uh, ourselves that made the wine and you know, people all over the world drink it, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. Get pictures, you know, especially the United States, pictures from all corners of the country mm -hmm. with people with our bottle of wine. And it's so nice. You know, it would never happen if we were selling widgets or something. Well, maybe, but... Um, so uh, that's why we call it Anamkara, um, and because it's all from here, and we planted it. We live here, we drink the same water as the vines, and mm -hmm. so that's how it became Anamkara. And then with our first bottle of wine, we showed it to, you talked to Boyd Tea Garden? Mm -hmm. We talked to Boyd, I said, Boyd, I have my first bottle, and he goes, where's your name? Well, you know, some back or something. <laughs> People want to know this, so now it says Nicholas Estate Vineyard on it, and or Jail Mountain. Da, da, da. Well, it has our name on it, Nicholas Vineyard. So now we live on Nicholas View Drive, Nicholas Estate Vineyard. Nicholas nickname. His real name is Warren, by the way. Not That's a picture of the vineyard from that hill over here. Yeah, that's taken from the other side. Of yeah, it's a. Amazing. A friend of ours uh, is a, a children's book illustrator, <laughs> and that's uh, the, the original label. And, and then the knot, the knot of uh, the Celtic knot symbolizes infinity. And then, of course, you have the connection of the vines. Mm -hmm. There is a time in June when those vines actually go crazy; they start mm -hmm. growing mm -hmm. a lot, and they actually will connect if you don't keep on top of them. Um, so there's that connection. Uh, so a lot of white, a lot of weddings we, for this wine. People, you know, we probably yeah. had a dozen boats christened from Massachusetts to Seattle 
to Miami. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's great when the guys with the caps on, Adam Carr caps. We have one here, Helen Saylor, and he's got a big boat. The crew is eight, I think, and he's won a lot of them. He's got his Adam Carr. All the crew's got the Adam Carr shirts on. It's cool. So, so, yeah, so we sort of stumbled into that thinking that was a great name and then found out that actually this book has is global. We didn't realize it was quite that important or impactful. But, um, yeah, so it has a lot of... So that's how we ended up with the name Adam Carr um, from a little dinner party we had. Awesome. So when it came time, you mentioned selling your wine. Uh, You mentioned a difficult. So I'm curious. uh, Tell me about that. You finally have you have this wine that you've worked so hard for. It has your name on it. Has all the stuff on it. How do you get it in people's hands? How do you get people excited about it? What were some of the strategies you used, and 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 how did you build sort of a following to get your wine out into all all corners? Our, Our first our first wine was in 2003, and it was terrible. Absolutely terrible stuff. And we had, we had 100 cases. We were like, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't want to drink it. <laughs> and we, we came up with this idea that, well, it's really, because the fermentation got away from us. It was just awful. <laughs> so it was like cooked. <laughs> so we thought, oh, I know. Let's just tell people if they like Syrah, they'll like this wine. <laughs> So we did. They go, oh, I don't drink Pinot Noir. I said, do you like Syrah? I love Ooh, Syrah. Right, right. That's big. Oh, that's that's nice. the best Pinot I ever had. It's like, good. So we sold it one bottle at a time yeah. that way. Um, but after that, we kind of honed it down. We used to do tastings. Before we had a tasting, we just do tastings around our dining room table right in here. Mm-hmm. And we came up with the idea of just having 100 club members. And we'd, we'd, we'd all know their names and everything would be cool. And um, so we were up to about 80, because um, everyone who came thought it was lovely. And, you know, uh, we ended up, we ended, opened up the tasting room and suddenly everybody wanted to join the wine club because they tasted the wine. And they were like, well, I'm sorry, we have 100 members. You can't, so, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up, the first 100 are now founders. Mm-hmm. And we have... We have founders that were, have been with us for 18, right from the beginning. So they all have their numbers now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they get together, they're like, uh, oh, I'm number 87. Last year I was 88. <laughs> I moved up. <laughs> so um, that was kind of it. You know, we do something special for them. We love our wine club, and that's mainly at the tasting room and our wine club. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had distributors here and there over the 20 years mm-hmm. um, and you know we're getting back up to possibly having a few more but we're so boutique that oh, I don't like that word but we're so small intimate yeah but it's not yeah. uh, it's not of interest really to many mm-hmm. big ones so we get lost in a big well, we, have a, we have a big distributor but, I'm sorry yep back east who uh, does a lot for us but he's big mm-hmm. you probably heard of Total Wine mm-hmm. we've been there yeah 15 years mm-hmm. So, uh, but only with like two wines. It's not like all of them. No. But it's really our wine club, wouldn't you say? Sorry. It's really our wine club. Oh, that, yeah, they, that, that helps. It helps a lot, really. And they're terrific too. Yeah, we have a good time because we have a, a starlight uh, dinner every year here. That got 125 people. And last year we had the chef, who's the head chef of the Seattle Coast Culinary Association. Mm-hmm. So he came over here with his, his uh, what kind of steak was that? It was not hanger like steak. Hanger, mm-hmm. hanger steak for 125 people, <laughs> cooked to order. Yeah. And we would do it all the time. We've had stuffed pigs buried in the back in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. And we've had, oh God, we've had Japino. Uh, I went to big things. Paella. Paella, we had two things of paella this big. So this is our big wine club event of yeah. the year is a star party with Omzi. <laughs> so one of our um, our wonderful staff members, Kate, works at Omzi, and so she we were the first winery vineyard to have one of their star parties. That's awesome. So we support them um, with product with wine, and then they provide this incredible star party for our club members. Plus the head of head of. Uh... Yeah, and Jim Todd comes out. He's the head of head astrologer, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he's a great guy. Because they've been doing it for, well, we've been doing it for at least 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's a, the sale is gone. I mean, the club members just gobble them up, you know. <laughs> it's a sale. We're not gonna, we don't care how much it is. We know it's going to be great. And, uh, we have, and then a start party. Sometimes it gets smoked out. Sometimes, you know, the clouds. No, it's never happened. We've been pretty, pretty, pretty lucky. But we're never going to be huge, you know. Um, he's the tractor driver and CFO, <laughs> and I'm the. What do I do? And the brains behind it all. Did you hear? Did you get that? Did you get that on? <laughs> I just, just slipped. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so we do it all. Mm-hmm. You know, we we do the plumbing and we make the wine mm-hmm. and we do the. Tasting and the dinners, which is the fun part. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very involved. I mean, she was been the chair, PR chair for the IPNC for six years. Supposed to be two years, and they kept saying, "No, you can stay. You can stay. You can stay." But you get so big, and you've got so many things yourself. And it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. She finds a way to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can chase the dogs out through the vineyards and stuff, and yeah. shoot gophers. So yeah, I mean we're it. So I think we're limited by the size of the vineyards, and we're also limited by Eight. the fact. <laughs> yeah, that too. But we're also limited by you know we don't have fancy staff or anything. We have low overheads, no overheads basically. So that's why we can just do what we like doing. We make a good profit, excellent profit. So it's it takes work. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't fall on your lap, you know. That you got to get it, you know. But we enjoy that because we enjoy the, the pleasure after we've accomplished something that people have accepted it, and we say, "Do it again." Yeah, that's a nice feeling. Mm-hmm. You talked earlier about knowing the vineyard. I thought that was really the way you described it was really interesting. It's it's uh, kind of becoming part of you and, and, mm-hmm. and feeling. I'm, how long did that take? How long? How long did you have to be here? to become, to have the vineyard kind of become that part of your life? Mine was fairly quick because I was on the tractor and I was seeing evolving all the time, you know, so the bud break, you know, and then we got the flowering, you know, and then we got the birds and then we got other insects and we don't use, we don't use chemicals. Mm-hmm. So we say, well, how effective is this, you know, and, and you just get involved because you see it every day and it changes every day. Mm-hmm. And it's an enjoyment, you know, I can say I really enjoy it being out there. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, playing with 15 employees, you know, it gets it's old after a while. I can yell at the mind and they don't yell back. What about for you, Sheila? I don't know. Um, pretty much from the beginning. I think when it, when it just sticks in the ground, it's a bit boring. But once they actually have buds and you see the little tiny grapes, it's like, now, this is important because this grape is going to make something that will be around for, I don't know, ever mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's pretty, it's a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vines are, are very, they're very resilient. They're very tough. They, they kind of, um, well, I don't you know, it sounds silly, but, you know, you can walk through the vines and talk to them. You can sing to them, and then every so often you'd see one that's sort of collapsed off the trellis, and you, you put it back up and clip it up, and it'll go like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yep, you're welcome. That's good. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, from the beginning, basically, mm-hmm. once, they're, once they're on the trellis, I think, it's probably mm-hmm. when they actually sort of become personal. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I'm curious, I want to talk about the industry a bit more from a, kind of a broader perspective now. You obviously, we talked earlier, you, you had a, a bit of an idea what, what was going on up here as you got here, but I'm curious uh, what the changes you've seen. What, 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 what about Oregon wine has, has changed in the years you've been here? And what does it look like now to you, uh, looking back 20 years back? What does the industry look like to you today? It's a lot more organized than it was. Um, the wine board is extremely strong. Um, it's been fantastic to see that 
in operation, if you will. Um, I was going to say a machine, but it's not really a machine. I guess it is. But, um, you know, especially with the, the challenging years, they really step up. Um, the same with the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. They, it's, it's another um, level. In the old days, it was just kind of like birthday party type thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that right. But, but basically, it was, it was, now it's much more structured. You know, there's research. There's um, support. There's, um, uh, I mean, you know, just go to the symposium, etc. This is big, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's fantastic. So, but it's a bit more of a machine than it ever was before, which has really stood us in good shape in the last, you know, some of the challenging vintages because they're there for us, which probably wasn't okay. That's Missy. <laughs> um, so I remember when we first came up though, um, it's been really fun to see like Chardonnay take off. We, um, at one point when I was doing PR, I was fortunate to be invited to help the Oregon Chardonnay producers, all seven of them, <laughs> um, do some PR. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I remember meeting in the back room of the Dundee Bistro with the seven were Harry Peterson Nedry, mm -hmm. Dave Adelsheim, Louisa Ponzi, Eric Honecker, Tony Reinders. Oh dear. I'll think of them in a sec. Who'd you miss? Oh, uh, what? Uh, who'd you miss? I can't think of who'd you miss there. Uh, I'll think of it. Do the left brain and everything. But we, you know, we used to have fantastic meals with Chardonnay mm -hmm. and uh, we called ourselves Orca. I remember that naming party quite succinctly. <laughs> oh, did I say Tony Rinders? Mm -hmm. He was Domaine Serene at the time. Oh, and Veronique. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, that was, we called ourselves Orca, the Oregon Chardonnay Alliance. Alliance. Mm -hmm. And uh, set up some Got some really good press because we could we sent out these packages with the history of the Dijon clones and of course having such great spokespersons it was a PR person's dream mm -hmm. um, so much so I came back and said honey we need to plant some Chardonnay <laughs> so we had some Chardonnay now yep. <laughs> Um, so everybody wants to buy it. Say, Look, we gotta have some too, you know. So it was a great story for journalists, and that that was huge, and it was fantastic to get all that press. Um, and it's it's become bigger and bigger and bigger because people are um, just. I mean, look at it now. You know, it has its own symposium. It's phenomenal, and it started off with those those pioneers, and it was very exciting to be part of that group. And say so we were just hang out and brainstorm and mm -hmm. you know it's great so what was your question <laughs> <laughs> just the cha just the changes you've seen in the industry um, yeah that's one mm -hmm. um i i think it's also impressive to see how riesling is taking off up here mm -hmm. that's always been a hard a hard nut to crack mm -hmm. because people always assume as you know it's sweet and boring and grandma drank that but um we used to have uh basically Aura, Oregon Riesling Alliance, a lot of the same folks. Um, we would meet at Panarash, various places, but most recently at Panarash. It's been years since we did this. And we would, it was open to everybody. Um, if you made Riesling, you were invited, you brought a bottle of your own Riesling, um, a, bar, a tank sample that was about to be bottled. And we would analyze it, we would brown bag it, and we would do flights and all that stuff. And, you know, when the bags came off, they would go like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And, <laughs> uh, and then literally people, it was no journalists, no public, just us. Mm -hmm. And it would be, uh, well, have you tried this? I did this, I did that. And it was, it's, I think, one of the ways it has raised the perception of Riesling. And it's really fun to see the younger generation of of winemakers making Riesling. Mm -hmm. The Psalms are into Riesling. It's just got to get the public into it. But it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and we had to plant that one too. We had to plant <laughs> that one too, yes. <laughs> no, we had that. Um, but we no, no we had here. grocery down there. Yeah, actually. we had Riesling. Okay. 
So uh, yeah, so that's been been fun to see that happen, mm -hmm. and I think it's really exciting to see uh, the recognition of Riesling on the world stage. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, there's an article today I haven't even read it, but basically, um, uh, the market share of Oregon Riesling or Oregon Pinot, Oregon wine, driven by Pinot, has risen by. 5% or something, which is still this much, mm -hmm. but California has only risen by like 1%. Don't quote me on those numbers. 1% mm -hmm. of that much is a lot more than 5% of this much. But if you take it, we've never compromised on our pricing. Mm -hmm. We've, we've um, basically haven't been able to because mm -hmm. it's not cheap grape to make. Okay, so cool. we... And, and I think the world perception, you know, the sort of ripple effect of that has been that people are just like, man, Oregon make good stuff there. And they, they do it, they live it, and they are heavily involved in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's made a huge, think, huge difference. It's interesting. Finally recognizing it. It's too, is the, what I think is the response we get from San Francisco Chronicle wine um, judging. Mm -hmm. We have been a gold for seven years. Yeah, we did. It's just, it's just automatic, but I mean, there's different people. And then we just had another one, uh, East versus West, that we came in with some of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we got people want to buy it. I said, hey, fine, but I, I can't sell it because I need it. <laughs> you know, it's a nice problem to have. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. yeah. but uh, <laughs> I don't like back orders, and we have a little of that right now. That we're finally getting over, but uh, it's nice to have for a while until you fill the orders. Then, thank you. <laughs> but then find more. We got no more land to knock out, and the next door neighbor that's fifth generation, so I don't think he's going to get any up. <laughs> that's the Shaw's. That used to gonna, that were going to be Shaw Mountain rather than Parrot Mountain. Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I'm curious from a. With your background in PR, especially, um, what you've seen, you mentioned kind of the, the growth of like the Oregon Wine Board and the Miami Wine Growers Association. Have you, have you noticed the, the industry doing a better job of marketing itself, of getting itself out there since you've been here? Has, has that improved? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, of course, the last two years have been another you know, yeah. blip. Yeah. But um, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, Oregon Pinot Camp has, has now this, it's a golden ticket to get invited to that. And that is, and those guys become ambassadors for you. And, and that was a brilliant move. Uh, IPNC, there's nothing like it. Um, and again, those people leave from Oregon in love mm -hmm. uh, with the wines, the people, and, and it's just natural. We're not faking it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, there's that. And then, of course, you know, the whole marketing side of things with the big guys um, are being very supportive of the little guys because we can't afford to do, you know, a trip to New York anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think we could. But, um, <laughs> but we can if we're part of the Willamette Valley wineries that are doing like a road show. Mm -hmm, I can't mm -hmm. remember what they call it, Pinot in the City. Mm -hmm. uh, then we can go. And then we get the, the power of their... PR and marketing and so on. So that helps us a lot. It helps a lot of small people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's been really helpful to us. Um, lots more marketing opportunities, much more creative marketing opportunities than we ever had. Um, so that's it's it's great to have that support. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do it on our own. <laughs> What about what comes next for, for Oregon's wine industry? Obviously, you mentioned the blip of the last couple of years. Obviously, it's been tough on everyone, the pandemic and, and, a, and a rough vintage in 2020. Uh, a, a, what do you see as you look ahead? What are you, what are you hoping for the, the, Oregon, the Oregon wine industry looks like? Is there anything that you're, that you're fearful of as you look ahead? Um, well, I think one, one thing in our favor uh, probably just just talk, talking off the top of my head, but basically one thing I believe is that we are still not really viable for the larger, as many large corporations as there are in other wine growing areas mm -hmm. because 
We have a climate that changes every year. It's hard to make consistently exactly the same wines. Um, can be done, but it's expensive for them to do that. But it, the land up here is still comparatively cheap. Um, although that's getting more expensive, but it's getting more and more bought out. Um, and also, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's, we're on slopes. The premium vineyards are on slopes. So if you want a good vineyard, you can't afford a machine to harvest it for you. You need that money. You need to get the crew. In other words, you can't compromise the price. You can't really produce a $12 bottle of Pinot Noir. You can probably produce a $12 bottle of Cab. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. simplistically speaking um, because there's so many still too many overheads so we'll, I don't think we'll ever be you know there, there are some big guys in here now obviously they're not necessarily in the hills mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily in the little microclimates that make us all little people unique mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. big big Mm-hmm. But they're coming. They are. But there's less land and less land and less land. So, you know, their qualities are going to go away and away and away. Or they're farming on the valley floors yeah. so they can put the Oregon label on it. And that's that's been ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, seeing what some have done to other Oregon producers has been pretty ugly. Um, and uh, But as an industry, we support each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, it's not that we're really, well, I should say that the, that the larger producers that have, the more conglomerate producers that have come up here and uh, invested in Oregon wines, it, there's definitely the ones that, that support us and the ones that don't. And you can tell the ones that don't are just like, mm-hmm. they're out there and it's like, fine, whatever. But the, re- the ones that really care about us, I'm thinking, uh, well, Kendall Jackson's been fantastic. Fully Kenzie, mm-hmm. um, Pemarash, you know, they, they've been um, doing a great job with that. Um, you know, they've, they've supported the individual brands and kind of made them separate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is fine. But they also get us out into the world. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to, to ship our wine internationally. Um, and so, and they're shipping a quality product. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, so, but I think we'll still always be known for our um, smallness mm-hmm. in terms of size of production. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the average size of production is. It's very small. Is it 10,000 cases or something? No, Plus no, than that. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. The last stat I heard was that 80% of Oregon producers make 5,000 cases or less. Ah, so good. it's mm. like 3,000, I guess, or something. It's right. It's small. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, we don't, uh, we're intentionally, we drop a lot of Pinot. Mm-hmm. We drop sometimes half our crop. Mm-hmm. But we know what's happening on the way, so we watch it, and so we can better gauge how much, when, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and sometimes you'll get a super, like with 2021, 20, it's fantastic. I mean, that's it, a great one. It's great wine. It's turning out to be a great wine. Mm-hmm. But it had high yields, but we had shave it a bit, mm-hmm. which is fine. We usually do that anyway, but it's about changes every year. And it depends on the clone, too. The clone will change on the growing periods. Which is interesting because we've got what four different clones of Pinot Noir, and make four different types of Pinot Noir. So uh, we can use those different clones. That's a, that's a lot. A lot of different different clones behaving differently. That's a lot to keep, lot to learn and keep track of. That's an interesting process. And it changes when you blend each one. And the same next year, blend the same one. You got a different wine. So it's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's it's an interesting challenge. Did you say why does it do that? You know. So you try to rack your head, well, I've got to learn because if it happens again, I've got to have the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you're small, you can do that. You know, you can, your, your lab's out in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the thing you learn. Mm-hmm. You're out there picking little bunches and 
checking if there's any disease or whatever. Huh. So I think that's what we'll get be known for probably forever, hopefully, is our small uniqueness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, when you go from 70 down to 7, it's quite a reduction. Yeah. <laughs> but we sold it to somebody that knows, has been here for a long time. Our vineyard. Yeah, mm -hmm. you probably know who it was, right? Yeah. The Austins. Mm. Mm -hmm. He bought 60 acres mm -hmm. here. He knew the vineyard. From Raydance. Mm -hmm. That knows us, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Raydance and, and the Austin, the, uh, the, what's the name of the spa? The Ellison. The Ellison, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we wanted to we wanted to find somebody that was willing to do that because mm -hmm. we're still here, mm -hmm. and so uh, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> <laughs> their, their venue manager was the, ours the same, so mm -hmm. we you know mm -hmm. it was it was a transition that we wanted to make, and they didn't have any problems with it at all. They just said absolutely how much, so there was no bargaining. There was there was just an understanding that. You're going to get a great vineyard. They knew they were going to get a great mm -hmm. vineyard. So, so it was. It was good. I mean, we could have found somebody else, and and you don't know it. So, past history that it happened, but I think it was a good good transition. So, what's next for you two then? Down to just seven acres now, and <laughs> what's next? Hmm? <laughs> Well, I don't know. The kids don't want it. We're so going to vacation a little bit. Yeah, we're trying. We're, I don't know. It's, we keep saying, oh, let's retire, and then we harvest more grapes. <laughs> or find a property. And then you harvest more grapes. That means you're in for three more years. So. <laughs> then we so. find a place that had shellfish. So we bought yeah, we a did place oysters that, for a bit, didn't we? We had oysters and clams for five years. <laughs> uh, and a B&B. &B, Airbnb. Airbnb. Mm -hmm. It was great. It was the Puget Sound. Watching it, beautiful. And so now we're looking at another one in Newport. So, gonna have yeah. a place to go sometime, you know. And it's, it's you know I'm pushing eighty two, so you know it's time. Mm -hmm. The old bones don't go as far as they used to go. They hurt though, <laughs> even more. But it's hard to get off the. It's hard to hard to do. We just mm -hmm. love it here. Yeah. It's, whenever we travel, we go like, okay, there's no vineyards here. <laughs> I need to go home. Because my family is from Bordeaux, actually. Nicola used to be without the H. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's in the blood. It's got to be around a vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful area. Yeah. Oh. So I don't know what's next. We'll just keep going. Still sit on our deck. Still watch the watch the grapes grow. It was, it wintered here. We'd have got to go find summer, mm -hmm. you know. So we do that first. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have for the two of you. Anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Not really. All right. Hopefully, you got good information. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for your time and your hospitality. <laughs> Thank you too, Missy. I appreciate the uh, the snuggles yeah. while I was asking questions. Okay. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.